You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. Um, the Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect is this book that I've just uh, made. It is a uh, collection of photographs that I took in 1979 when I was living in New York. And the first part of the book is a, a, a prose poem um, that I wrote uh, and completed in 1983. So the book is in three parts. The first part is the prose poem. The second part is the um, um, picture section. The pictures in the middle of the book were displayed at the Museum of Modern Art in 1979, as, uh, sorry, in um, 2017 as part of the Club 57 uh, show on um, uh, film, uh, photography, and art in the East Village between 1978 and um, uh, 1983, which was, is now widely been considered one of these periods like uh, Paris in the 1920s was, just this, uh, this conflation of things that happened that allowed for this, uh, uh, experience uh, in the art world to, to take over. It was also a, a period uh, of um, where the nightlife uh, and the artistic life merged for a while. And so it was a very vibrant time. You'd see a lot of people there um, in uh, and all sort of sorts of mixes of disciplines. And I think but the main reason that that happened was at that time in New York, uh, you may remember the mid uh, 70s as a, a time of very high inflation. Um, it, it actually, um, I remember my CDs uh, were getting 15% interest, which was a nice thing. <laughs> that also meant everything was going up uh, crazy. Manhattan had a 40% occupancy below 14th Street, so it was mostly. Uh, occupied on the ground floors, but the upper floors of the buildings were empty. So you could you could rent a, a space, a large space uh, for very little money. So you didn't have to work as much. So we were all working a couple of days a week. And then the rest of the time we could engage in this, this activity of art making and, and socializing. And also the commercial spaces were empty. And so uh, the nightlife was uh, vibrant because you could r rent these huge spaces and turn them into nightclubs and, th and the rents were very low so that the, the margins worked well. And then the third section of the book is really a reflection on what, uh, what that experience of life was like, uh, or um, I'd like to call it a karmic tracing of, of how I ended up moving from Chicago to New York just at that time, and what was that like? Uh, I wrote it about 1979 because 1979 was the first year that people started to die from AIDS in New York. And you may remember uh, 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 that uh, the, the AIDS period, uh, uh, or AIDS itself was identified and, and named in 1984, but there was this period of time before that that, that people were dying of an unknowable uh, illness and even the transmission wasn't uh, um, understood and it affected uh, gay people more than everybody else. And, and uh, the, the prejudice at the time against 
gay people and the oppression of the gay community at that time was quite different than it is now. Uh, in 1979, homosexuality was illegal in all 50 states, and you could be subject to being fired, to eviction, to jail uh, if you were uh, caught engaged in that. And so there were a few places like um, San Francisco or LA or um, somewhat in Chicago, but in New York, these large uh, communities that gathered around that because there was a relative sense of freedom there that there wasn't in, in uh, other places. And so um, what I thought I would do is read from the first section of the book, the beginning of it, and then read the first section of this, the third part of the book so you can get a sense of the difference between the exuberance of a 20-something uh, uh, exploring the world for the first time and uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, jaundiced view of somebody in their late 60s reflecting back on the exuberance of youth. Uh, and then to, to tell, because the book is really about telling stories, some stories in there. I thought that while I was doing this, I would um, run the book in the background so that you'd have a, a sense of what it's like. Um, and so I'll just let that go in the background and you can get a sense of the book. And then I'll, I'll read. So this is from the section called The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect. Note, the suggestion has been made that I cue, clue you in to what's happening here as if What's happening here were not self-evident, a small explanatory note, a prelude to avoid confusion. I like to make motion pictures. By industry standards, my scenarios are considered soft, not a lot of violence on screen, too much consideration of the emotional side. Think of these stories as a calendar, a collection of days, weeks, months, in the end, a year, a warp of images woven together by bright ideas, if you can stomach it. There are three golden rules that govern New York nightlife. The countdown from unimportant to fundamental. Three, do not bug the DJ. Two, tip the bartender. One, be good to your doorman. There are three rules by which a doorman will govern the door. The first, the doorman is always right. The second, the customer is always wrong. And three, should the customer not be wrong, refer to rule one. There are many ways in which an individual can be good to a doorman, an expression of affection that guarantees priority treatment, causing the crowd outside the club to make like the Red Sea and sail through no waiting. You're looking so good I can hardly keep my hands off you. I've got a boat, would you like to go water skiing? How about some blow? If engaging the doorman is too much money will compensate, properly done, bill folded, denomination showing, not under $10 please, palmed in a handshake is considered cool. Waving money like a flag is not. Do not attempt to bargain with a doorman. A rule of thumb, the doorman will only accept money from those 
they would let in anyway. The most money I've ever refused from a single individual at one time was a crisp new $100 bill. The man was an out-of-towner in town for a furniture convention, drunk, unzipping his fly and taking his penis out of his pants barely in time, he peed on the front steps of the mud club. I said, there is cool and there is uncool. So now I'll read from this, the third section of the book, which is called, um, Chicago is not New York, Los Angeles is neither one. Trouble finding. When I uh, originally wrote the book, I wrote the first two sections, and there was a short sec section at the end, which was just notes on how I put the book together. And when I presented it to the first publisher that I had for it, which was called the uh, Visual Literacy Conservatory, which was, which was in uh, Washington, DC, and uh, one of the founders of Google had created it. Um, they said that they wanted the book and um, they would print the first two sections of it and drop the third section. And then I thought that they really should have the third section. So I flew to Washington and I did this whole presentation that lasted a couple of days about the importance of the third section. And they said at the end of the meeting, um, okay, write the third section. And then if we like it, we'll include it, but otherwise we'll just print the first two sections. And so I went back to LA and I laid out the outline for the third section. I realized it was gonna take me at least a year to write the third section because they had wanted it greatly expanded and in the, the form of the prose poem that the first section was in. And so I called them back and said, just print the first two sections, we'll do without the third section. And they said, oh no, no, you've totally sold us, we want the third section or, or we don't want the book at all. And so I then went into the adventure of writing the third section, which actually took about six years rather than um, a year. And so, uh, I lost that uh, uh, contract. The main thing that happened is uh, halfway through writing it, my father died, and so I had to rewrite it because a lot of what uh, is in there in here is about him. Um, but this is the third sec section of the book, which is meant to be uh, an updated version of the first section of the book. So it, it it has the same structure to it. You may notice. Note. My spirit guide, who, when you summon him, materializes as his sobriquet, Santiago, transmits to me in what is now my own conviction, you, as in me, I got some splainin' to do. No, this is not some woo-woo bullshit. Santiago comes in another simulacrum, another ditto. My friend, the writer, Jimmy McCourt, he you can have dinner with, Skype, listen to his words through a cellular phone. Santiago says what they, emphasis mine, 
needs to understand is how things have changed. I have, to the extreme utterly and without seemingly ineloquent, and without seeming ineloquent, lost interest in American motion pictures, strike, movies, pronounced films, not by volition, mind you, without any conscious explanation, my mind no longer thinks in feature-length scenarios. I wish I could engage with some certainty or at the very littlest with the willfully blind conviction of the Republican lower middle class who perennially lemmings pronounce votes themselves and the rest of us, the bottom 99% out of financial existence and over the cliff into penury, that this change in mind is not the result of the intellectual reduction sauce that is the mindless advertising-driven Facebook algorithm of perpetual distraction. Am I lying to myself about the effects of late night channel surfing, the click, 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 stringing along of one protagonist after another in a sort of hodgepodge narrative, the who gives a fuck if it makes any sense to just don't let it ever end dreamscape unconsciousness. Maybe this is why all actresses are interchangeably blonde and one set of actor abs are indistinguishable from any other. I know they are not. I'm just looking for a reaction. In my own defense, comic book heroes have zero appeal. The upper middle class angst fantasy is not a lullaby anyone important ever sings to soothe me. The American dream of every wannabe rich white daughter and son of a rom-com ending in a that's fantastic slapdash wedding inherent to the form, the very pinnacle, the climax before the denouement of actually living together as man and wife or wife and wife or man and man at set is so recently an option for gay people in California have yet to give it serious consideration. What I mean to say is the FCC airways going digital from analog results not in more viewing choices, but to my giving my 25-inch Toshiba color television set with stereo sound to Levi, the superintendent of the building I live in in sci-fi to ship to his parents in Belize. Sci-fi, Silver Lake, Filipino town, is the newest hipster neighborhood in Los Angeles only six months ago before the merger when I answered the artist David Hedron's question with historic Phil Filipino town, I expect to explain where exactly that is, as is my habit since moving into gangland 18 years earlier. But he says, oh yeah, hi-fi, historic Filipino town. The New York Times maintains that more hipsters live in Silver Lake than in Williamsburg, Urban density aside, imagine where we will be when sci-fi merges with Los Feliz and Echo Park. Sci-fi, FIFO, pronounced SIFO, or alternatively, cipher. I observe from the, my perch high above the moral landscape, old hipsters never die, they just squeeze into impossibly inappropriate clothing. Maybe I'm beginning to make sense to you. I, I really want to, I do. 
but back to the points I'm trying to make here. One, I require my fiction to bear the slimmest resemblance to the world I, as I experience it. Admittedly, the only fiction I read these days are the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times, or if the story requires a point of view exterior, the Irish Times, all online, of course. All first thing in the morning with an espresso or two, or who am I kidding, three, four, five. I know Nestle owns Nespresso. I feel an appropriate amount of guilt. The machine is a gift from one of my students and boycotts are subject to impermanence and like everything else in Buddhism, what we call Anicca, Pali, Sanskrit, Anitya, pronounce Anitya, word origin, noun, Buddhism, one, the cycle of birth, growth, decay, and death through which every living thing must pass. Two, I do not find youth to be the most satisfying time in my life. I prefer my life now. The voice in my head, the automatic part of my mind that for 30 years ceaselessly turns out feature-length scenarios goes dark, offline, out of there, Kiss it, sweet ass, adios, fuck face. What story there is now, not even what the studios call a short, a short subject, the cartoons before the feature are merely passages lacking a beginning, some random middle, no end, fragmenti. This is where this whole, this is what this whole thing is. Narrative, threads, linking, disparate, protagonists scrapbooking on a single page, a yellowing newspaper clipping, a Polaroid, a ticket stub, a present moment memory flashcard, all Photoshop, no real chronology, memory beads of a similar pattern. The mind is very good at recognizing patterns, stringing them together all the way back to the first patternings in Buddhism, what we call Sati, Pali, Sanskrit smirti pronounced ati or sati, word origin noun Buddhism one, mindfulness or awareness two, to remember to recol to recollect to bear in mind, aka conditioning. There is only the present moment. Why not just admit the obvious and attend to the here and now? Why this? relentless need for everyone to explain themselves, our never-ending selfie, look at me, look at me, look at me, of course, just getting them to look at you will not be enough. See me, know the truth about me, and in knowing the truth about me, still love me. That is what we all want. Of course, for you to see me, I will have to be willing to reveal myself, let you know who I am not who I intuit you want me to be, to sleep, perchance to dream I, there's the rub, or in that sleep of death what dreams may come, William Shakespeare. To be authentic is to bear the possibility of abandonment. To be completely authentic is to hold the possibility that someone you love more than life will leave you. My mind brings into consciousness a line from Romance, a film Santiago and I write in 1979, 
story by me and Peter Smith, the female lead, Jessica, says in the performance artist Anne Magnuson's voice, the first revolutionary act is killing your mother, and I still phone mine every Sunday. Santiago says, reading an earlier draft of this poem, you describe pretty well what happens, nothing about what you feel. I want to know what you feel. I hang up. Not in the same sense of hanging up an actual physical handset. I no longer have a landline. In 2008, forgetting to pay the phone bill, something my mother teaches me as a child how to do. Three weeks go by before I pick it up to no dial tone and in so doing realize there's no purpose in reconnecting it. And I do not want to spend the money, something I learned as a child from my father. I hang up the cell phone by touching the little red handset icon on the screen. I am an Android user. I have a lifelong repugnance for Steve Jobs and the whole phony Apple guys going all the way back to the Apple II. I am an early adopter. So I refuse to own any of their pretty, pretty. I tap the touchscreen, disconnecting from Santiago's wish for my work and crawl into bed. I literally pull the covers over my head, something I do not do since the bad old days of Paxil, antidepressant, clonopin, anti-anxiety, Seroquel, antipsychotic, and Ambien times two sleep that I characterize to my prescribing psychopharmacologist strange. I remember his suits, his resplendent bulge in the fine cut cloth, but not his name as that wonderful chemical cocktail of my sanity. I try through late childhood, adolescence, and early youth to treat my major depressive disorder at home with what there is at hand, hunkering down variously with copious amounts of medicinal alcohol, vodka after Memorial Day, scotch or bourbon after Labor Day, fistfuls of pills, emperor with coating or in sunshine or purple double dome, LSD, LSD, a joint or two or three, who am I kidding of Mexican wacky weed white cross amphetamine you can drink more sex goes on forever without ever coming to the point and to momentarily rocket me up to the brink of conscious oblivion but not out cold a sinus full of poppers butyl amyl is illegal and what an upstanding citizen i am partly upstanding upstanding before five in the afternoon maybe or whatever you have, freely give, or out of your medicine cabinet, your stash door, who cares, not me, your basic, run-of-the-mill, generic, garbage head. Okay, I'm not proud of this, or at least the parts I can remember. Riding out the earthquake of abandonment terror after the latest longing for pseudo-relationship fails in sophisticated surfer dude parlance, I count the heartbeats before the sucking dry of the tsunami of terrible sadness, so much unresolved childhood trauma, hoping against hope for some crazy pale Mary hang 11 last chance bail, hopelessly caught in, eating the inevitable 
dirty lickings of the next in a permanent line of gnarly wipeouts. Under the covers, I consider my options. I could stay here forever or die, whichever comes first. Absurdly, this approach never brings lasting relief, release. Doring for a living does pronounced pouring. A doorman does not have to get up until half past seven in the civilizing evening. Depression eases after losing daylight. If you have a really bad night relating to the people outside the velvet ropes, you cross some invisible only to you boundary over the line into outrage country. If you misspeak your life into actual danger, you can step back in a mock gesture of helplessness and indicate to Big James and Paul Sonner your security, the bouncers, your requisite permission to beat down, to ass kick the holy fuck out of, to darken the daylights of the former human beings standing in front of you, hollering, gesticulating their displeasure now, just another motherless child, douchebag, fucktard, dingleberry, open a can of whoop-ass or every indignity you ever endure and ride the taste of revenge and the gladiator's adrenaline out of your black hole. Plan B, stand on the third rail of the emotional memory so assiduously apartheid and report back on the effects of a bajillion jewels of afflictive emotion, regret, anger, and disappointment. In Buddhism, what we call Kalesha, Pali, Sanskrit, Kalesha, also Klesha, Tibetan, Nang, Mong, pronounced Klesha, word origin, noun, Buddhism, one, mental states that cloud the mind and manifest in unholy, wholesome actions. Two, ignorance, attachment, and aversion are the unwholesome root or source of all other Klesha's. Three, mind poison. The emotion per se is not the problem, but your relationship to it, regret, not taking the opportunities you want and are clearly on offer because you cannot believe that they are there for the taking. Anger, we are moral creatures beseeching high heaven for the meagerest jot or tittle of justice for Tronic's still-faced babies. Disappointment, soul crushing as if souls exist, that all of the adults were charged for your care as a child so resolutely declined to meet any needs other than their own. Maybe this is the how of what happens. I have come to prefer the still photograph to motion pictures. Back to the start, the figure ground re-reversal of a reverse ground figure, go figure, fuckface. Chicago is not New York or Manhattan, which is what we mean by New York back then. New York now is as different from New York then as Chicago is from Los Angeles, where I live now. A couple of weeks ago, Santiago says they built a new New York around the old one. You can still find the old New York if you know, uh, if you have time and know where to look. 
this makes sense to me, given the peripatetic nature of our dialogue, walking, talking, New York. Anyone halfway across the East River on the water taxi to India Street in Greenpoint, Brooklyn can see from the menacing wall of indistinguishable skyscrapers only too much money buys. Everything is bizarre. So that's the uh, opening of, this, of the third section of the book in contrast to, this, to the uh, first part of the book. Um, when I lived in New York in, the, in, uh, in my 20s into my uh, 30s, I worked as a doorman in some of the uh, clubs that have been regarded over time as the, uh, the um, most interesting of the time. So I, I started working at a club on 57th Street called uh, Hurrah, which had been the Studio 54, so the uptown discotheque for, for the for the, for the wealthier people in the city. And then when Studio 54 owned, overnight they lost all of their clientele and so they remade themselves as a punk club. Um, but it was at the end of punk, uh, I don't know if you uh, remember the 70s, but in the early part of the 70s, it was the LA sound. So the Eagles and, and uh, that sort of uh, um, rock and roll from that period. And then uh, punk really started in London. Uh, the, the, the biggest groups, of course, were the Sex Pistols. And, and uh, because the economy was so hard uh, and uh, everybody was so broke, it, it became this uh, uh, energy to take what very little there had was and make it into this, really, this statement of protest. Um, I um, was in a band, of course, called The Downtown. Sissies in Revolt Ensemble. Uh, we performed, it was a, a mix of men and women and we performed either as men or as women. And uh, the first series of costumes were all house dresses that we bought on Orchard Street. Uh, and um, we sang songs like the Sissy Internationale, which was a sort of a, a protest song uh, about the oppression of uh, being uh, gay and, and sort of gender fluid. Um, but right at the end of the, the 70s, there was this the transition into new music because the, the, the punk sound was being uh, sort of synthesized for radio and, and made much more peppy and poppy uh, as uh, the 80s began. Um, so um, what I want to do now is then read about New York nightlife and the way that we uh, experienced it. Um, there comes a point for their own survival. A doorman must repel verbally an individual who, in attempting to get into a nightclub for three hours, had fried everyone's last gay or straight nerve. Look, you're not going to get in here at all tonight, so why don't you just fuck off? I know I'm not going to get in, but you got to tell me I have to know why. Why can't I get in? All right. If I tell you, will you leave? I swear on my mother. Okay, here goes. 
I don't like the shoes. I don't like the pants. I don't like the shirt. I don't like the mustache, the haircut. I don't like your face, okay? I've seen a lot of guys going in here dressed worse than me. How come I can't get in? You're fat. Faggot, you cocksucking, motherfucking piece of shit. Faggot. You, on the other hand, are still fat. The longest any individual has waited to get into a nightclub in my personal experience was from mid-May 1981 until the first week of September, uh, until the first week of the following September. A man in his late 20s, tall, Mediterranean looking, not unattractive, but somehow off. He told me after a while he had been recently released from a mental hospital, that he was on SSI. He got his check every month. He drank six or eight Budweiser tolls nightly. He purchased them one at a time from a deli two blocks away. When I would not let him into the mud club, which I never would, he would make the loading dock across the street into his living room by arranging boxes of fabric scrap into furniture. He would drag the boxes over from the garbage piles around the corner uh, in the alley behind his sweatshop. Every night he would make the layout of the loading dock as close to the layout of his SRO as possible given the garbage available that night. Always the same night after night. Smegly, secure in the safety of his imaginary, in, uh, secure in the safety of the imaginary confines of his loading dock hotel room, the door security read bouncers nicknamed him Smegly from Smegma, the crud that accumulates under a foreskin in honor of his persistence, said, I don't mind, actually. It's kind of nice. I never had a nickname before. Smegley would lie across the boxes of fabric scraps as if he were lying across his bed, pull a can of beer in a brown paper bag out of the pocket of his navy blue corduroy sports jacket, take the beer out of the paper bag, crumple the bag up, and toss it into the street. Then he would pop the top, take a long drink, look across the street, wait until he had made eye contact with me, then hold up the can of beer and offer loud enough to carry across the street, you want some? Six or eight times a night, I always said no. One or two times a night, Smeg would charge across the street and demand his right as an American citizen in the land of the free to be let, to be let into mud. I would give a knee-jerk no. Then the bouncers would have to threaten, cajole, plead, sometimes carry him across the street, scream, give him a Heineken, anything really to get him to stay across the street on top of his boxes to shut up. The door security wondered out loud how it was possible that there was actually somebody who had so little to do in their life, so little self-respect, that they could spend their nights, night after night, in front of a nightclub not getting in. I mean, what would you do if you couldn't get in? You just walk away, am I right? You just walk down the street, around the corner, somewhere else, no big deal. Smegley and me, our nightly ritual, just as I hit the sidewalk on my way home, Smeg would rush across the street to ask me if maybe tomorrow I'd lift the chain at the mud club we used chains instead of ropes and let him inside five nights a week, mid-May, 
until one night in early September 1981. It was an especially busy night, one of those bleach blonde nympho chicks with amazing implants restrained only by a day goatee more in the honeydew family than cantaloupe, complete with the superpower to cause a spontaneous erection in every male with even a cursory exposure to normophilic heterosexual pornography, got out of a rented limousine and was swept through the chains without my nod, though through the door into the pulsing new wave music, taking all my bug-eyed muscle with her as she went. There are a few situations on the door as perplexing where doorman is when an internal security issue gets so out of hand that door security is called inside, leaving him or her alone to fend for oneself. Do you compromise letting any Tom, Dick, or Larry into the club just during that brief period of exposure and run the risk of the worst thing that can happen to a doorman on the door that your boss, Steve Mass, or Steve Rubell, or Rudolph Piper, or John Argento should feel the need to stand at the door and second guess your magic? Or do you reject the usual goons and fight your own battles, thereby sacrificing the carefully constructed illusion that you are defenseless, that fuels the door security's willingness to put their body between you and the screaming Mimi Reed man that wants to tear off your head and shit in your skull? Why, after all, fight for someone who can fight for themselves? No such test that night as one by two by three by four, the door security returned, each one shot down, crashed and burned by the uncompromising standards of the bleach blonde goddess they longed to penetrate, each one commiserating the other. She was so high, he would have had to be rich or famous or I don't know what to get into her panties. Yeah, man. About the time the crowd let up the, and Charles, the head of security, looked over and noticed that the living room across the street was empty. Hey, where's Smeg? The nympho chick avec Melon Mel burst out of the door with Smeg, Smegly, Smagnificence in his blue corduroy blazer on her arm. As the chauffeur got out of the front to open the back, Smegly stopped to thank us for a wonderful summer. How the fuck did you get in there? was all Charles could figure out to say. Yeah, the combined total of the other three. I snuck in the back door. I just wanted to see inside, just get a taste. I waited so long. I knew you were never going to let me in. And when I saw the opportunity, my one chance, well, I just took it. I hope you don't mind. He bounced down the steps like a kid coming out of a candy store into the arms of everyone's desire. She smeared the lipstick she was wearing all over his mouth and slid inside the limo, pulling our one true smeg in behind. He smiled in our direction and said genuinely, I had a nice time. And he slammed the door, disappearing behind a blackened window. As the door security deflated, you could barely hear, fucking whore, bitch, puta, motherfucker. We never saw him or her again.
So uh, we used to call it every night fever where we were just out five nights a week because they only worked two days a week. Uh, and then um, around 1983 or so that began to change. The, uh, uh, you may recall um, that, the, that Iran fell and that the Iranian money came into New York. Uh, we were all living in these commercial spaces so we had no protection rent-wise. And so uh, every time the leases came up, the rent would double. Um, I was paying uh, 174 a month for my 1400 square foot loft on um, 11th and Broadway. And then it went to 453 and then went up to 800. Um, I got uh, kicked out of there. There were all, no protection and we were all living illegally. So we weren't supposed to stay. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't two days a week that you were working. It was three or four days a week, or five days, or six days, then two jobs. And then that whole period where uh, we were just free to be out and creating and, and um, making that uh, uh, wonderful time happen ended because we were no longer free to do it. But one of the things about the early part of it that was so interesting was the mix. The, uh, Manhattan um, has a sort of fluid uh, social uh, structure to it that's different than a lot of places. The very uh, upper class part of society would mix uh, in these nightclubs with everybody else. Um, there's a lot of different industries um, in LA, for instance, it, it's so entertainment heavy in, in, in the, the main way that so people mix socially, even though the main industry in Los Angeles is the defense industry. The people that are out and about and visible are from the entertainment side. And so uh, that mix that, that was available in New York, I really haven't found anywhere else. And so, this is a passage from the third part of the book that, that describes that more. My reputation as a sea hound caviar goes viral public during the going away party for my friend Lars Katman, the actor and brother of the famous Danish language writer Christian Katman. He is abruptly moving to Red Wing, Colorado to resume his 70s commune life with the other Bay Area hippies still living on the land. Nobody is saying, but in the early 80s, whenever someone abruptly folds up their life, we all immediately assume they have the bug. Back when having the bug means the initiation of the countdown to imminent horrible death. Lars throws himself an intimate going away party, only the in crowds from all of the in groups in his New York City life at the Upper West Side apartment of the owner of the catering company where he works serving finger food to the clientele where only you have to wear a tie. You have to wear, you actually have to tie a bow tie tie. Will do. So let me say that again. Lars throws himself an intimate going away party, only the in crowds of all of the in groups of the New York City life 
at the Upper West Side apartment of the owner of the catering company where he works, serving finger food for a clientele where only a you actually have to tie it, bow tie will do. A maybe Dublin crystal serving bowl sits on the buffet table full of North American Great Lakes sturgeon though, good enough for me to get a tablespoon from the kitchen and dig in. Two like-minded sea hounds present in the reveling throng, grok my move, collect their weapons, spoons, enjoy me and join me at the bowl game. When the competition for the other foods, all delicious, but really who cares when there's caviar on the buffet table, conflicts with our delectation in the spirit of our meeting cute, we collectively move the rudiment to the living room, placing it central on the coffee table, our bodies forming the points of an equilateral triangle. The good intentions grandmother of the hostess of the party derails a prolix period of self-tablespooning, sussing our hogging the goods for ourselves with complete indifference to everyone else. She pulls her glasses down her nose with a right index finger, looks at the same time over the top of her glasses and down on us, a Miss Stanford lesson in uh, proxemics. Or earlier in the book, Miss Stanford is introduced. She was my fourth grade teacher. Don't you want to save a little of the caviar for everyone else? Head movements in unison, we attune to the specter of Miss Stanford, we attune to ourselves, to our base natures, then in a single extemporaneous three-voice minor chord. No. An immediate return to spooning our best effort. We are unable to finish all on offer, leaving the leavings for everyone else generosity American style, although the ashes of magnanimity and gender aspiration. The story gets around Donna Hall, the chef who runs the Petrosian boutique in Bloomingdale's on 59th Street, will call over her Rolodex of sea hounds when a great can comes in. She likes to have a second opinion before committing as this is a fanatical crowd. Maybe you want to swing by. I think I got a good one, Donna says, over the landline. In the summer, I ride over on my red Raleigh 15 speed with upright handlebars and a cushy seat. Donna gives me one mouthful. She is merciless that way. Nothing I try except cash. And believe me, this is a no holds bar match. Always only one. When it is insanely great, my head Bob's almost by itself, definitely, I say, as my eyes roll back in their sockets. Then Donna seduces through the phone, typically, beluga, beluga. Neither of us have a taste for Ocetra. Donna gives me a Petrosian 18-carat gold plate caviar paddle from Tiffany's, which I still have as an acknowledgement of my invaluable service to the cause, which people who know me well in New York know I have on me at all times. Just in case, Tambien, Howie Montauk, Roma del Cine, just in case. One New Year's Eve at the Soros's, from across the room I notice a silver caviar server. As I draw a beeline through the so-and-sos, I recognize ice crushing, cradling a smallish crystal insert. 
fondling a modesty of Saruga, my favorite. I prefer Miramar rubies to the blood red of India to one of the quirks of my otherwise brilliant aesthetic. I slip into the kitchen for a tablespoon and then back to work. Someone disingenuously concerns themselves with the reactivity of a silver spoon with the salt and the caviar affecting the taste, blah, 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 duca, duca, duca. With me, the caviar spends so little time on the spoon, there is no chemical consequence. Susan Soros appears out of nowhere. Are you eating all of the caviar? Yes, I find there is usually no additional penalty to admitting the already patently obvious. The following year at the Soros's New Year's Eve party, I notice an absence of caviar on the buffet table. I seek Susan out and inquire, no caviar this year? This year, other people are going to have a chance at some. Susan looks over at a waiter with a tray of dollops of my precious saruga on mini blinis and vanishes in a swoosh of immaculate blonde. Utterly devoid of any deterring impulse, I stand by the swinging door to the kitchen, wait for the waiter to come out with a fresh tray, projecting an unshakable confidence I proclaim. I'll take that. Really, what is she or he going to do? Wrestle me to the ground for a few astonishing hors d'oeuvres? In keeping with one of the few doctrines I give my life to, many blinis get in the way. I insert the canopy whole, scrape the God bless you, no, et set Saruga off the round with my upper teeth and then place the denude pancake back on the tray so as not to disturb the overall layout. Susan appears out of nowhere and eyeballs the tray. I don't believe you. The exchange gives me a pants down sensation, but then another tray comes through the door. The year after that at the Soros's New Year's Eve party, I notice there is no caviar on the buffet table. I stand by the kitchen door and tray after tray comes up empty. I locate Susan. I can't seem to pinpoint the caviar. I say in a tone to suggest a helpless child on the verge of a tectonic meltdown. Susan flashes her Klieg light smile, gotcha. Or maybe she didn't say gotcha. To be candid, I cannot remember what she said. The full-on dorsal dive leading me inexorably to, into dissociation. Gotcha is the gist of what she said. Memory does not work in details, only in algorithms of the what it means to you and the body you are in when it happens. I enjoy fun. Once I sent an invitation to Susan and George to attend my 35th birthday party in the banquet room at the Golden Unicorn in Chinatown, the text reading in part, dipping my toe into middle age. Susan sends over 50 pairs of socks, her note in part, to keep your toe from getting cold. I still have the last pair in a memento drawer in the bedroom. In 1993, the second year I live in Los Angeles, I go to Robert Downey Jr.'s New Year's Eve party on Broad Beach Road in Malibu. Malibu. Walking down the hallway into the living room from 50 feet away, I can identify the Petrosian blue on the side of a kilo can sitting on a bed of crushed ice. 
on the buffet table, I call out uncontrollably, Robert, Robert, Beluga. Robert calls back of his, as if promulgating a single answer to all the known questions in this or any other universe, a theory of everything, T-O-E, Saruga. That is all I need to know. My favorite is what I say as I segue into the kitchen for a tablespoon. I dip into the unblemished surface of a kilo can of bliss before me. Here I am living the off-dream moment in the fantasy lives of all sentient beings throughout all time and space, this life and all others already live, yet to be born or not. Just me, really? Lance Waldron at the time yet to decide, standing at the other end of the buffet table, working his way through a huge mound of red, ripe red fruit says, these are the best strawberries I've ever had. For the last two hours, Lance matches me strawberry for tablespoon of caviar. People drift by the buffet table. The strawberries are a sensation. There is an occasional I've never had caviar than the rapid deployment of a napkin to spit out the disgust. It's an acquired taste, I say, sort of like smoking. Not like smoking, smoking is bad for you. You would not believe the amount of cholesterol in caviar. I say between tablespoons full, an intentional strategy born out of years, spooning in front of caviar shrines on buffet tables, wherever people let me. Lance says, I cannot believe how sweet these strawberries are. I get suspicious and try one for myself, then spit it out into a napkin. These strawberries are so sweet because they're full of booze, I say. That cannot be, Lance says. I just got sober. I try another strawberry and spit it out. Have you ever had a vodka watermelon? Remember how incredibly sweet they are, I say, trying to implicitly suggest that one can, trying to implicitly suggest what one cannot explicitly name. There is no way, Lance says, I've got like a second sense. These kinds of impasses drive me crazy. I love to solve puzzles. I like to be right. I go into the kitchen and recognize Eva, a caterer I know from New York holding a 50cc syringe, injecting each strawberry with surprisingly good for the purpose, brandy. How drunk can you get off these, I ask. Eva thinks out loud, exactly five cc's in each, I don't know, very, I do the math in my head, 30 cc's equals one ounce, equals six drunken strawberries, equals one beer, equals one glass of wine, equals one mixed drink. Nobody seems to be going for the saruga but me, I say to Eva, knowing that she and Donna are an item making her a witness to our years of caviaring, and so she will be compassionate or at least sympathetic to my puzzlement over the lack of competition for the black egg. Go figure, she says, almost simultaneously sticking the needle in and pressing the plunger down. I think I know why you think the strawberries are so good, I say to Lance back at the buffet table. Oh yeah, Lance says, 
pulling the leaves back on its next victim, organic? I say, they're laced with a rather good brandy. Not possible I would have tasted that shit, Lance shoots back. There is a woman on the other side of that door injecting five cc's into each one. I persist, that's bullshit. Lance is emphatic. Just because you say something doesn't make it so. I say only trying to help. Sometimes what is obvious to me is not so obvious to everyone else and vice versa. I look down at my own achievement, roughly half the can. I put my hand on my stomach and feel profoundly the roundness of my own limitation. The tsunami of terrible sadness abdulates away my inner equilibrium equanimity in con uh, conjuries of daydreams. How many kilos of my beloved Petrosian Suruga do I devour? How many stars are there down there? For those of us who live in fantasy, reality can be crushing. I'm fucked, I'm totally fucked, Lance says, returning to the table to the scene of his many crimes. How many have you eaten, I ask, as part of a strategy to circumvent the abstinence violation effect from throwing Lance back into the gutter. Av refers to the negative cognitive, i.e. internal, stable, uncontrollable attributions, cognitive dissidence, and effective responses, i.e. guilt, shame, and individual experiences following a return to substance use, following a period of self-imposed abstinence from same Curry, Marlat, and Gordon, 1987. Who knows? You saw me. Hundreds. Lance picks up another strawberry and stares into its plump, red, seductive, seedy exterior while at the same time refuting the unassailable truth of its interior. You could always stop here, I say. Big, angry self brightens Lance's face. Just thinking out loud, I say. I'm going to have to start my day count over anyway. I might as well make it worth it, Lance says, ripping the defenseless strawberry into shreds with his bare teeth. For my own part, I push the last scant iota of luscious, lovely into my mouth and hold it there for a while, awaiting room down there before swallowing. Vanquish, I put down my spoon. Later, as I dog-ear the party, I spy Eva tossing the blue tin top-down into the tall kitchen garbage can. I rush in. That was Saruga, Petrosian Saruga. Just words fail me, I say, picking up the empty urn, staring down at the detritus of a million potential sturgeons. I ask they didn't want it, Eve says, moving on to the next. As an act of atonement for my humiliation in the caviar conflagrations, true caviar sam samurai that I am, I silently vow never to dip my gold plate sterling silver Tiffany's caviar paddle into gorgeous gaudy again for what turns out to be ever. Did I mention that I'm mostly vegan now? So that's the end of that passage.
going to unmute if you want. So those are the passages from the book. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. Do you have any questions or anything you want to express? Gold paddles is so nouveau riche. <laughs> you really want mother of pearl. You don't, any, you don't want any metal near your caviar. Just, just saying. Yes, it, it is. It's a, it is a big debate. Although there are the people who say that gold is non-reactive. <laughs> it is, but you, when you put it on the vent on your mouth, it still has a metal feel, and you know it doesn't. It doesn't warm to the same way it warms quicker to the caviar so uh -huh. <laughs> i would never serve it on gold ever do you lament the loss of uh, uh the soviet union uh and the extinction of the sturgeon so that there is no more russian caviar the way that there was then i don't know if you're aware of that i, I am trust <laughs> Now it's all uh, lake fish row, which uh, yeah, it's linked, it's dyed, it's it's cultivated in different ways. I mean, it's the truth is a lot of the flavors are very similar. That is, you can actually get really, really well, and Petrusian does in fact sell a lot of it in very good ways. But um, so if you've never really had pre-war caviar, you would know. But yeah. right, anyway. I'm showing, I'm showing my class. <laughs> George, I grew up eating caviar almost daily. Oh, did you? <laughs> it, made, it made the kind of binge eating caviar seem preposterous. <laughs> Good, that you got my attention. <laughs> you know, if you eat a half a kilo of caviar, you're 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 close to death from being oversalted yourself. Uh, so it's hilarious. Anyway, um, I should also point out that I I, I intentionally chose some, some fairly light passages from the book. It is a memoir about. Uh, New York and what happened with AIDS. Um, uh, also, my brother's suicide and how that affected the, the tra trajectory of my life. So um, I, I put those lighter stories in there to balance this, the, the, the harder parts of the story, hoping that it would carry you through. Um, and then there are a lot of pictures in, in the book as well from the, the period of time taking pictures. And anyway, I hope you enjoy it. And I'm, I'm very appreciative that you came, and I will see you soon, I hope. Thank Bye you, now. George. It was really was great. Wonderful. It was really... Thank you. Took me back to New York. It was really... I mean, I am in New York, but took me, took me back to the old New York that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Good. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank Bye you. Now. Thank you, George. Thanks, George. It's a, it's a good way to end this rather spectacular day. <laughs> good. Bye now. All right.